0: Aiken Presents, and I, of course, am Chris Aiken, and I always love talking to this guy here. We talk to him all the time on the Classic Metal Show. I guess it's the first time on this show, but it's all the same, really. It's just <laughs> two of us just chatting away. His name is Scott Dietschy. You've probably seen him in many a documentary about many a hitman or many a uh, uh, mafioso. He, he's done them all, I think. He's back with a great new book. It is right here. It is called Hitman. It is fantastic, and uh, here to talk all about the new book and uh, the other things that he's doing in his world is the great Scott Dietsch. Scott, how are you, man? Uh, great, great, and always, a, always awesome to uh, talk with you. Sure, man. Well, dude, as as you're well aware, you cannot pass any of this mafia stuff past me without raising <laughs> my eyes, man. I, I love it. And that's, I'm going to start there. That's what I love about this, this book, Hitman. I honestly had no idea, none. I I mean, I I know that there's families outside of the big five in New York, but I think like most, like most people, I don't know a lot about them. And, you know, you really kind of, kind of circled in on, on, you know, people that I had not heard of before Mm -hmm. Talking about the uh, the East Harlem Purple Gang and uh, some of the players there, so let's start there, man. What was it about this collection of characters that that moved you to not only write the book because you know I, I get it, that's what you do, but more generated your interest into discovering this this world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was doing my last book, Garden State Gangland, the, the Jersey Mafia one. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was looking at a murder of a guy, Johnny Coca-Cola Lardier. He was a Genovese mobster who was killed in, in New Jersey. And I came across an article in the in New York Magazine from 1979 about, they called it the 22 caliber killings. And all these mob associates around New York were getting killed with 22s, And they attributed it to the Purple Gang of New York City. Sure. Now uh, The Purple Gang I would known, and you probably know, were the old Jewish mobsters during Prohibition era out of Detroit. You know, mm-hmm. They were into bootlegging. And I, I'd kind of heard a little bit about the Purple Gang, but wasn't really familiar with them. And I was like, okay, this is something that hadn't been written before. Really piqued my interest, and uh, so I started doing some research and um, pitched the book idea through my agent to the publisher that did Garden State Gangland, and they were they were into it as well. So that kind of got the ball rolling.
0: Sure. Now. I, I'm going to throw a theory past you and you can tell me that it's absolutely bullshit or that it's real. Cause I don't know, but as dumb as this sounds, do you think this, this, I guess, family did not gain attention because it was not known as a family because of the name of it, you know, the, the street mm-hmm. name of it being a gang, it's almost instinctively thought of as, you know, a smaller thing, not, not, not in the same category as the, you know, the five families and the Kansas city families and that stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and to kind of like give the best analogy of what this group was, it wasn't really another family. It was like a farm league team for the five families. So they were kind of a, uh, they were more than a street gang, but they were relatives and sons of some already established wise guys in the five families, but they were kind of like this offshoot faction. And uh, there's a great FBI surveillance uh, report I have where they say the Gambino family to Bonados actually held sit-downs because they were having trouble with these young kids. You know, sure. these guys, they were all in their early 20s, and they were out dealing heroin and shooting up everything. And it was, it was just kind of a this crazy, like, cowboy group on the side. Um, and, and yeah, that's probably right. A- aside from kind of this little spurt of newspaper fame in the uh, 1977 there really wasn't much written about them in fact sure. if you if you go on newspapers.com or something you google purple gang in the 70s you get more about the Minnesota Vikings so, <laughs> than you <laughs> do about these guys
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice do do you think that and, and you've done the research so you probably know were they a group that was trying to become a family or were they happy in the, the quote unquote, the farm team environment that where they were just kind of learning their, their craft, I guess, and then being picked up by the, by the major families. That, that That's again, a great analogy of, of putting into
1: like a baseball team. So they, you know, they, there was a bit of a power vacuum in the early seventies in East Harlem. There was a huge uh, bust in the early seventies where close to a hundred mob guys that were dealing heroin in East Harlem were were taken off the street so you had a little bit of this vacuum and, and these guys kind of were the next generation they were in their early 20s at the time stepped into that and yeah they both had their own thing going but by the early 80s you see some of them getting kind of recruited into the Lucchese family into the Genovese family so they, they liked having their own thing that was how they were making their money but as soon as you know that the big, big league team tapped them on the shoulder, said, Hey, come on board. They, right. they went on board and uh, it, we can get into this a little later, but um, some of them are still around and heads of the families now. So wow. it, it was pretty successful as far as like a, mi-
0: a minor league team. Sure. Do you think back, especially in the seventies, seventies and early eighties, so I'm going to say late seventies to early eighties, do you think that the families liked having this group around? Because they were so surveilled and so you know under investigation all the time, that this was a good way for them to get quality people to do work. That if they did it with their own people, it could bring too much heat on their own family.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good point. And and you know one of the one of the key things with the Purple Gang is they were um, really adept at uh, trafficking guns. They would go down to Florida and buy you know, boatloads of guns and bring them back to New York City and distribute them through the through the five families. And there were very, there were a couple cases here and there, but very few. So um, yeah, it, this was a group that was, it was kind of known to law enforcement, but there wasn't a lot known about them. So for a, for like a Carlo Gambino or Galanti, you know, these guys that are like under 24 seven surveillance. Have sure. them, yeah, that, that that's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. But in thinking about the way they operated, that they were kind of like that go-to team for the five families. Really, specifically, uh, the Genovese and the Lucchese family were, were really the close families to the Purple Gang.
0: And, and why was that? Why, what, what put them closer than, than the other families?
1: Uh, some familial ties so okay. the, uh, the the Prisco brothers who were tight with the Genovese were members of the purple gang uh, Frank Vicerdo his father was a maid guy with the genovese family so um, there were some familial connections there as well and there was some there was some banano connection as well but not really as much Colombo or, or Gambino uh, but um, and then there were guys that were just kind of independent that kind of found their way into the purple gang but You know, they all kind of grew up in East Harlem around the same like couple blocks and then, you know, eventually moved out to the suburbs of the Bronx or Yonkers. But, um, you know, they all were tight together as well because of those connections and growing up in the neighborhood. Sure.
0: Now, again, I'm, I'm making a guess that I don't know from and I'm looking for you to be the expert here and tell me if I'm right or wrong here. But is one of the key differences, not only with the Purple Gang, but just in general, these guys that are not quite a family is one of the big differences that the families all seem to have a knack of getting their tentacles involved with government or law enforcement. Seems like by the time you reach that level, that's part of the gig is that you get the law enforcement in where we're like from, and and I'm not only through the book, so it may be at the end of the book, but it doesn't seem like the purple gang had any ties at all to any kind of law enforcement. At all it seemed like they were true Wild Wild West guys as far as how they acted.
1: Yeah, absolutely, especially in the beginning. And and you see as you get through the book and you see them kind of growing up, they start to like invest in a legitimate business here and there. Or mm-hmm. you know, try but you're you're absolutely right in the beginning. They they didn't have any of that sophistication of operation. It was it was heroin, it was violence, there are a lot of internal violence and you know, wild stuff on the street like shooting up bars and stuff. So yeah, it was totally wild west at the beginning.
0: No question. Now you mentioned the the Prisco family and I, I was in reading the book, I, I was reading about um Angelo Prisco and, mm-hmm. and Michael Meldish, who, you know, are kind of key players, at least at the beginning of your book. Tell me a little bit about these two guys and specifically why has nobody heard of these guys? Seems like they were pretty bigger, larger players, no? Yeah, yeah, and, and in the mob world of us mob
1: geeks, their you know their their names are, are a little bit more well known. But yeah, you ask the general public, they've never heard of them. So, right. uh, Angelo Prisco and his brother Pasquale uh, grew up in East Harlem area. They were heavily involved in the Purple Gang, and, and Angelo became a made guy in the Genovese family, and and in the nineteen nineties, kind of ascended to. Uh, uh, pretty important capo and one of the more important Genovese crime family members. Uh, he's he since passed away, um, but uh, and Michael Meldish was interesting. So Michael Meldish wasn't Italian, so he can never be made into one of the five families. So right. he was always kind of destined to be an associate, but he was very heavily involved with the Purple Gang. But kind of Michael Meldish's I don't want to say claim to fame, but. W- people might've heard the name is in November, 2013, he was shot and killed in the Bronx in New York. And it's really like one of the last like pretty big mob hits in New York. There's been one or two since then, but um, the Meldish killing, because it was like this guy who you hadn't heard of or haven't heard from in like 20 years, all of a sudden it gets killed, you know, in the Bronx behind the wheel of a Cadillac. It's like, you know, an old school kind of mob. Right. And then the guys that do it are stupid. They get caught on the traffic cams and everything. So they end (laughs) up catching them. But um, yeah, so, you know, these are two guys that, and it's kind of interesting. They they both started out and they're related. They're cousins. So they both start out on the same path and Angelo goes, you know, hierarchy. And Michael's kind of eking out a living on the streets and then ends up getting whacked.
0: Sure. How common is it that, that, it seems like the, I mean they obviously make movies like Donnie Brasco and whatnot about guys that are never able to be made. Or not Johnny mm-hmm. Donnie Brasco, but Goodfellas rather. Yeah, mm-hmm. where 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 they it seems like at least in the lore of gangsters, there's always there always seems to be those guys the that are not you know not blood, so they can't be made and they can't be an official part of the family, but yet they're as important or more important mm-hmm. because of their skill of making money. You oh, know, absolutely. is that, is that like a common thing or is that, is that kind of, it's uncommon, but those are the stories we hear.
1: In some families, it is common. And, and you think all the way back to like Meyer Lansky or uh, Mo Dalitz, you know, the old Jewish gangsters who were never made members of the mafia, but were certainly extremely important in the evolution of organized crime. And, you know, to like the Michael Meldishes, and yeah, there are a lot of guys like that in a number of different families. Chicago had quite a bit of non-made guys that were very important, Um, even smaller families. And, you know, I'll go back to the one I've written about a lot, Tampa. Mm -hmm. They had had Cuban and Spanish mobsters that were, you know, had the ear of Santo Traficante, even ahead of some of the lower level made guys. So it it was not uncommon for guys to to have, you know, a lot of power. They just couldn't officially be
0: made, but they were Mm kind of
1: like, you know, held in very high esteem.
0: How, how, how do those guys, I I get how those guys would survive at the top level. You know, I, I certainly understand the bottom line to the gangster business is how much money do you generate? Mm -hmm. So I understand at the top level, looking down how those guys could gain some respect, I'll, I'll say not necessarily power, but they definitely gain the respect and they're sort of left alone to do what they do as long as they're good at it. But for the guys coming on the other end of it, how do they, how do they fend off those guys disrespecting them slash taking them out once they establish you know, a business? Because they all seem to work together. What I'm trying to say is they all seem to work together, but let's say you've got a a non-blood associated guy that's a master diamond thief. Uh-huh. He's gonna work with two or three guys that are are potentially able to get made. You know, they're not made yet because they're they're you know they're lower tier, but they can get made. Uh-huh. It seems to me in my head, the easiest way to get to get over that guy and to get that power and that esteem would be to take out that guy once you learn uh-huh. how he works. And that seems perfectly within what we know about gangster culture. Yeah, How, how do those guys survive that and not get taken out? That, that's a really good question. So I, I think there's a couple answers
1: to that. Number one is kind of what you're alluding to. They have a skill. They have connections. They are, you know, either grow up or, you know, let's use Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Henry Hill and Jimmy Burke were not going to get made, but Paul, uh, you know, Tommy de simone was, of course, right. he gets killed. But so because they're such good friends, they've known each other, they'll kind of ride his coattails or, you know, assume he'll give them the protection. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other advantage you have is being a non member associate, you can kind of fade away anytime you want. You know, if you're a May guy, you can't just like up and pack your bags and head out. Right. Uh, but if you're not, you can kind of, you know, if it's getting a little too hot, you kind of fade away from the scene and, and, I've met a number of guys that were once pretty heavy, close associates and then just kind of a couple of guys got busted and then they just kind of, you know, went off and did their own thing. So I, I think there's a little bit of freedom of movement there that maybe as a as a made guy, you don't have and probably doesn't have quite the attention of law enforcement.
0: Sure. It just seems like it, it's such a it's such an open door. It, you know, and again, mm-hmm. I, I think we're trying to put our our sense of reality into their sense of reality, which are two very different (laughs) senses of reality. For sure. Absolutely. (laughs) No question, man. Well, dude, obviously, man, with, with this new book, you know, it, it raises new, new attention to you and your, your book series as well as your work, you know, on documentaries. So with this book coming out, what, what is coming next for you? Is there, is there anything coming Specifically about the the Purple Gang, or or not really, or
1: well, I'm doing you know I'm doing some um, promotional stuff now, and mm. and it, it, it's funny you know when I when my first book came out, Cigar City Mafia in 2004, right. um, mm. most of my promotional stuff was in person appearances or book right. signings, and it's changed a lot. I mean, I can't tell you how many podcasts I've done. Don't know. Obviously, your show I do every time mm-hmm. I have a book come out, and it's. You know, the, the, the way of, of doing book tours has changed quite a lot. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I just did a, um, a podcast, Joey Miami. Uh, I was mm-hmm. interviewed for that, that came out. Um, I just did an interview for a documentary that'll be out next year, just a general mafia documentary. Um, but it makes it easier, especially doing stuff now, you know, via Zoom or sure. Team or whatever. Uh, so th- that's been what I've been doing in terms of the promotion of the book. I did an appearance at the Mob Museum. Uh, but now that the weather is and off, we start our Tampa Mafia tours again. We started Excellent. last weekend, and uh, we'll be continuing that through May. As, as I mentioned before, we don't do them in the summer because you don't want to be walking outside in, <laughs> right. in the middle of July. It's right. not fun. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's what I'm concentrated on now, and uh, I have a couple already starting to, you know, I'm generating ideas. And something that came up during this book, so it's like each book kind of feeds on. next one to get a, you know, start thinking of ideas. And, you know, uh, just one other quick thing too is is the the inevitable thing that happens after I write a book is people reach out to me after the book's published.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. like, oh, you wrote about so-and-so. Let me tell you this. Or you wrote about so-and-so. Let me tell you this. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I, I always have in the back of my mind, some of my books have coming out with like an updated edition just because I get I, I get great stories. This one, actually, I I was able to talk to a few people. One guy, I don't know how he found out I was writing it, reached out to me. Um, Robert Geronimo. He was a uh, he was a drug supplier. He worked with Nikki Barnes, who was a well known African American drug kingpin. Oh yeah, well aware Nikki Barnes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he worked with him, and he he reached out to me. And just kind of gave me some great stories. though Wow. Yeah. Wow. To be your phone. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: And my email it's right. And look, they're not all legit. I get some fucking wacky emails.
0: From right, I'll people, bet.
1: Crazy shit.
0: I was John Gotti's right hand man. It wasn't Sammy the bull at all. <laughs> yeah. Or you get,
1: you know, you get
0: someone that wants to write it. And I understand you want to write a book,
1: but there's, it's like, Hey, I met this mobster once. I'd love to write a book about it. <laughs> I'm like, sure. you know, like, no. I'm not going to have, That's but funny. I, I do get some, maybe I'll send you a few. I, I get, Oh,
0: I'd love a, to read that, man. That would wacky, be wacky, crazy shit. I'll bet. That's
1: funny. Dude, the well, latest what do you, one. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say real quick, the latest one I've been getting, I've gotten a few of these Or now with this 23andMe and this new stuff with Ancestry people mm-hmm. are like, well, I, th- I think I'm the love child of you know, insert mobster name here. Can you help me find out information on right. my family tree? <laughs> yeah.
0: Now you're a genealogist as exactly. well as a, as well as a mob writer. Yeah. <laughs> <Nope>. nice. Uh, <laughs> well, what do you think, man? And and you as somebody that has investigated this, and you know how it's grown. I mean, you really understand how how the mob or Costa Nostra or what, Costa Nostra or whatever we're going to call it has grown and developed. What do you think now when you see guys? And I'll point the two, and it's not that I'm pointing at them specifically, but there's probably 50 more like them. These are just the most known. What do you think when you see a Michael Franciszi just telling everything, or Sammy the Bull? If you'll throw him $500, he'll tell you one-on-one what you'll what anything yeah. that you ask him. What do you think about that? Because that is so against everything that the whole the whole thing was built on and now it's just ah, who cares here it is yeah
1: so a couple thoughts on that um one is that the the more research and especially over the last 10 to 15 years the more research we've done we found out that there have always been informants in the mafia all the way back to the early days Mm -hmm. but they generally would do it both to save their own ass also to kind of it was strategic informing and a lot of Mm -hmm. it was um but, you know, I guess kind of looking at like a Michael Francesi, for example, or, or even Gravano, it's it's a way for them to make money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And most of the stuff they're talking, especially Francesi, I mean, he's been out since the 80s. So the stuff he's talking about is, you know, historical. It's not like there's active guys out there. Uh, there are some guys, though, on YouTube that are much more recent, um, but it, it's – it's weird to your point is that um, there's probably more wise guys now on YouTube spilling secrets on the
0: street. (laughs) It's, it's surprising to me because yeah. And and I'm going to apply us us regular people Mm -hmm. logic to this. We look at the young people today and we're like, Oh, them fucking kids. You know, you know, Mm -hmm. and we don't, we don't like what they do. We don't like the way we do it. We're, we're turning into the old men in the room. I have to imagine in that world, the old men in the room are still packing a packing a pistol, or or knowing somebody that's packing a pistol. That'd be like, hey, don't let him be disrespecting our family this way. No, yeah, and and I'm sure there's stuff they they won't say,
1: and I'm sure okay. there's stuff that they're they're keeping to themselves. The flip side of this too is, and I'm seeing this is, and you can relate to this. It's the it's the need to constantly put content out there mm-hmm. and they have a finite number of stories and so you start seeing i'm seeing on some of them repetition or stuff mm-hmm. getting outside or conjecture like yeah and i asked frank a lot about this before he passed away you know they asked him who killed jfk he was nothing no knowledge whatsoever right. but it's you know, it's just speculation from this point. So they're, some of them you're starting to see only have so many stories in their back pocket. And then they're, right. they're kind of stuck. So now they have this following,
0: they have this YouTube channel. What do sure. you do? So cool now time. the story is, well, I was there on the grassy knoll and I saw, you know. <laughs> Funny. Yes, nice. Exactly. Nice. Well Scott I wanted to go back to your tours I didn't want to just bl- brush over that cuz I think that's like yeah, the sure. coolest thing. I wish the last time I was in Florida I would have known about that cuz I would have for sure gone on this. Tell people about the about the tours and and what exactly you walk them through and and bring them, you know, bring them the history of. Yeah,
1: so they're the Tampa Mafia tours at tampamafia.com. We've been doing them now uh, it's about our 12th year. I think 11th yeah. or 12th year we've been doing them. Um, and it's a uh, we do them on generally on Saturdays, although we recently put in a happy hour tour where we stop at a at a bar halfway through for some libations. Okay. Um, but it's a it's an hour and a half walk through Ybor City, which is a historic section of Tampa. And I know people think of Florida; they don't necessarily think of history. But uh, sure. Ybor City in in Tampa is a neighborhood that was built in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and was kind of the birthplace of the mafia in Tampa. So there are a lot of great spots and, and some of, because it's a National Historic District, a lot of the buildings are still standing. Chances are they're a nightclub or a bar, but, but they're still standing. Um, so it's kind of a history of the evolution of the mafia in Tampa and a lot of places where guys got whacked, um, you know, old gambling parlors, places that were that had tunnels underneath them during prohibition. And it's, it's a nice, it's about a mile loop walk and- um, okay. Yeah, it's it's been really, really successful. In fact, uh, we we I, a few years ago I hired a, some help, another tour guide, helped me out a, a local historian, but uh, who has a ton of information about the mafia as well. So it's it's not cheesy. We don't do reenactments. It's just sure. you know tell, tell the history and let it speak for itself.
0: And people really seem to enjoy it. We're sure. How how do you keep it interesting for yourself? Because, you know, I, I know, I know because I've done work like that before, where you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over. It can get really like, all right, there's the building. That's where he got (laughs) shot next. You know, you, you get to that point. So how do you keep it, it fresh for yourself? That's a great question.
1: So, Every year I try to maybe add a new spot or a new twist on a story. I have extra spots and because Ebor is very busy sometimes mm-hmm. if there's too much foot traffic here I'll just, you know, reroute the tour. Um but you know, it's it's really trying to find sometimes I'll find a new story like one building that was a gambling parlor. You know, I could find 25 news articles about different raids, so I'll, sure. you know, pick one or two of them. Because yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Um you know, after you do this fifty times at the same thing, you're like, mm-hmm. "How do I show that excitement to them?" Because they're only hearing it for the first time. Right. So yeah, that that's important. And and sometimes, depending, you know, sometimes especially if I have private tours, I'll I'll really kind of shake it up a little bit in terms of how we do the spots and it just yeah, like I said, it it keeps it interesting for you, and then you're able to show that excitement to the to the people there on the tour.
0: Sure. Now now Scott I you know I, I'm throwing this out there and you can just tell me this is a stupid idea but I I, I saw that um Hitman is um also available on Audible That did, did now did you do I have not heard it did you do the read or did you hire somebody to do the read No
1: no the uh the publisher takes care of all that Oh good yeah. that's perfect <laughs> I don't have I don't have to lift a finger Right <laughs> it's
0: all done for me. I'm curious, though, if you've ever thought yourself about doing like a podcast of your own to tell the stories that, you know, because as I'm sure you're very well aware, true crime, true crime podcasts are arguably the most popular of all the podcasts that are out there right now. They are. They're the ones that are making millions of dollars and getting millions of views. And you've got. You've got so much knowledge and, and you're not boring when you talk to just, you know, just in general terms, you're, you're not like, and then we went to this place and that, you know, you're not that you, you tell a good story, both in the written form and in the speaking form. Have you thought at all about possibly doing that as an avenue for yourself? I I haven't. And really that's because of
1: time. Um, I have a, I have a full-time career. And then I'm writing and then I'm doing the tours. So that doesn't, you know, family and all that does not leave a lot of bandwidth. So that it's occurred to me from time to time. But but right now, you know, the tour is going really well. And, you know, I'm always excited to jump into a new writing project. And then, like I said, I have a full time career, um, which which takes up a lot of time. So it's really a bandwidth thing for me.
0: Yeah. dude come on you're wasting five six hours a day on sleep for god's <laughs> sakes come on <laughs> i want this podcast <laughs> yes nice well all right man well dude obviously man we've got this um we have this great new book it is called hitmen uh let me give the full name of it and hold it up it is hitmen the mafia the the Mafia Drugs and the East Harlem Purple Gang. It is Scott Dietschy. There's the book right there. Make sure you buy it. Where should we tell people to go to buy the book and, and or, well, obviously they can go to Audible as well, but where should we tell them to buy the physical book? Uh, yeah,
1: uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon are probably the big places uh, to, to get books nowadays. Uh, hopefully some of your lo- local independent bookstores in your towns can get it for you as well. I'm a big, big proponent of independent bookstores okay and uh, if you want to find out more about the tour it's tampamafia.com real easy to, to find
0: excellent and is there a place anywhere online where people can buy an autograph book if they want one or not yet or uh
1: if they want to shoot me an email and if you want to put that up but i'll say it now it's S-D-E-I-T-C-H-E at gmail.com okay i could either we could either do an autograph book or if you have a book i could send an autograph book plate to you and Get, get my name in there for you
0: very good or just bring it to the tour that's the Absolute, best way. oh yeah i i sign books on the tour all the time for sure. very good well one more time it is hit men it is scott ditchie and scott thanks so much for joining me here on chris presents
1: always thanks again for having me on sure man <laughs>
0: Hey everybody, it is Chris Aiken from All The Shows, and there is no need, none, to listen to commercial radio or satellite radio for music or commentary anymore. If you're a fan of metal, then we've got you covered, no matter what style of metal it is you're looking for. The CMS Radio Network offers four channels featuring all the best heavy metal music, commentary, laughs, and even dirty humor. Get your laughs and commentary daily, minutely, minutely. That's right, I made up a new word. Minutely on the CMS 24-7 channel featuring over 25 years of the best stuff from the Classic Metal Show. Hair Metal, it's alive and well on Hairball John Radio. Do you like the rock and metal of the 90s on forward? As well as shows like the Joe Elliott Show, Eddie Trunk, D. Snyder, and of course the classic metal show, then you need to be tuned into, to KRFK Radio. Are you a fan of the more desert slash stoner rock and metal, as well as the greatest thrash ever created? It's alive and well right now on Seismic Sounds Radio. If you're in your car, you're at home, or you're even at work, we've got you covered with the CMS Radio Network. Visit us today at www.cmsradio.net.